Hello, 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 and welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast that looks at the science behind our favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma, and this week, I'm, I've got to say, we, we really want to start with some good news, don't mm. we? Yeah, some amazing news, actually. Um, so Small Screen Science has been named a finalist for Science Podcast of the Year. Um, it's an award by the Association of British Science Writers, and we are so excited because there were only three finalists. It was us. The New Scientist and The Economist. Can you believe it? Bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. They were so <laughs> kind about our little mm. production and about our little ideas for bringing science to people through the lens of TV shows. It was, it was just the most wonderful validation. Is validation mm. the right word? It was just so nice to have a little pat on the back and say, yeah, you're, you're doing something that is not actually half bad. So yeah. thank you so much to the yeah. Association of British Science Writers. How cool. Yeah. What, what an honour. Honor. Yeah, absolute honour. Yeah, we're really, really chuffed though. Yeah, thank you so much to the Association of British Science Writers. Right, speaking of which then, let's get on with this episode of our <laughs> award finalist podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've listened to the rest of Series 4, you know that uh, what we're doing this series is that we are re-recording some of the live shows that we've mm -hmm. taken on the road to science festivals around the UK and we're popping them out as podcasts. So last week, we chatted about The Office, which we performed mm -hmm. at Cardiff Science Festival. And this week, Mother of God, we are looking mm -hmm. at another one of my all-time favourite TV shows. It was actually one of the first shows that we looked at as small screen mm. science. We're looking at Line of Duty, which we took to Belfast as part of Northern Ireland Science Festival earlier this year. Yes, so thanks very much to Cardiff and to the Northern Ireland Science Festivals for inviting us to do those. This show in particular was really, really good fun. Uh, when we spoke to the team behind the festival, they said, well, there's only one show we can really do in Belfast, isn't it? Line of Duty. Oh, absolutely. So today we are going to go undercover and turn on our burner phones to investigate AC12 and the OCG. Yes. And to do this in Belfast was such a treat. Uh, we never imagined that when we started that small screen science would be doing this kind of thing, that we'd be doing live shows and actually going around the country and doing you know doing our little science thing so oh it's, it's immensely exciting. fun like really mm. nerve-wracking but immensely fun <laughs> um and you know i mean one of the best things about this was that you know neither you or i had been to belfast before mm. so we popped over for a couple of days and we took ourselves on a bit of a self-guided filming locations tour <laughs> which included finding the grimy underpass the one that's like completely covered in graffiti mm. that steve arner always uses for his like secret meetings yeah. And of course, we took a picture of ourselves. <laughs> we wrote to my boyfriend in actually to take a picture of us looking very serious and suspicious mm. there in our big winter coats. I've got to admit, though, it did feel like quite a good place for a secret meeting, didn't it? You know, yeah. no phone signal. Nobody could see you. It was although you could you could hear each other from the end of the tunnel. So if you yeah. were secretly exchanging information, so there could have been somebody at the end listening. Um, and so many people coming through their shopping. I, you know, you'd have to stop and look suspiciously yeah. loitering there. Maybe quite good from a phone signal point of view, but not so much from a secret keeping your secrets from people. Perhaps point of view. not. But anyway, mm. you can head to our Instagram or Twitter just search for small screen <laughs> science uh, to see these pictures because we yeah. spent some time doing them. <laughs> and we need to release them out into the world. <laughs> Well, I suppose we better get on with the actual podcast and the science, really. Yes, go on then. So a quick bit of crime scene preparation before we start. Um, we do try and fit in as many quotes as possible. You may have spotted one already a little bit earlier on. I may have channeled H into the script slightly there. Yeah, mm -hmm. a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. 
So uh, more on the housekeeping. We did actually cover Line of Duty in our first series, mm. but that was before season six, guys. Mm. And we can't, you know, we have to talk about season six. So essentially for this show and for the live show that we produced, we have maybe we've taken a few bits from the original podcast, but we've wrapped mm-hmm. it all up with some new stuff. You know what? There's there's so much. We actually could do uh, probably a whole series on Line of Duty. Just and on, on Line of Duty, yeah. I mean, the world of crime and police science just keeps going. Mm. It's endless. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I suppose we ought to start with season six, hadn't we? Um, absolutely. So, yeah. What did you think of the controversial ending then, Emma? Buck- oh, buckles. buckles. I, I'll be totally honest with you. I hated it the first time around. I was fuming and I didn't mm. know if I was like justified in those feelings and then I went onto Twitter and I saw the entire universe was also fuming. <laughs> but then I watched it again, um, yeah. particularly because I knew we were going to be doing this show as well. I went back mm. and watched quite a lot of it all over again, gripping. Um, and you know what? I actually, I see what they did. I'm, I'm on board with it now. I like it. I'm here for it. Mm. I don't know what else they could have done. And I would have, and I think many other fans would have been quite mad if they'd introduced a new character as the overall yeah. baddie right at the end. So Buckles bumbling and annoying, sure. But at least he he played a part from from the beginning, so that's that's my take. It's one of the big no nos, isn't it? You don't in in crime writing, you can't introduce the bad guy just at the very end. They've got to have been there all the way through in that Agatha yeah. Christie spot all the clues kind of way. Definitely. And I guess maybe that's the advice then for those people who didn't like the ending is go through and do a bit watch of watch it all again. Yeah, have watch it from the beginning and uh, see if you can spot the clues as you go through and. And see what you feel about the ending afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I reckon. What about mm. you? Yeah, I think I agree with you, actually. And I think that was a really, really good analysis. Cheers, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just thought the whole series was really, really good. Um, lots of high octane uh, things going on, you know, lots of excellent scenes and deception. And it was, a, you know, it's a proper thriller. Um, it was. Really, really it was quite writing. an epic series, actually, yeah. wasn't it? Very epic. So... Mm science before this becomes an opinion podcast um what what is it the line of duty then can tell us about police corruption and bent coppers in real life the, mm. one of the, the first questions you've got to ask is hey is this true to life you know it's so fascinating to watch but is that what we're experiencing so when we're looking at the science behind the show we, we've got to ask particularly you know what is accurate and what is creative license mm. yeah absolutely and i suppose we need to start with ac12 don't we if we're going to do that absolutely so- Yeah, so uh, though there are anti-corruption branches in police forces across the UK, um, this department name was actually made up for the show, so there isn't actually an AC-12 in real life. Mm. No, I mean, the Met Police, the Metropolitan Police, has a version of AC-12, and back Mm. in the day it had the really cool nickname of the Ghost Squad, uh, because it it used to be so secretive, you know, and it was Mm. still elusive, but these days everyone knows it exists. Yeah. So I suppose um, if we look at Series 1 then... Should we start with series one and work let's, our way through? Let's roll right back. Yeah, yes, let's do absolutely. that. We know we like do we like following series, don't we? Um, so op- we open series one with a storyline about laddering, which mm-hmm. is a really interesting thing. So this is where you get criminals to confess to other smaller crimes to kind of clear up your crime rate, and you ask them to take it into consideration when they're sentenced, being sentenced, and that boosts your crime figures basically, doesn't it? And it, mm. and it's and it's a no no. Def- definitely, no, no. Um, and so this is one of the examples of where it's a thing that does actually happen and it was definitely mm. inspired by real events. So actually, um, even the year that the series came out, police officers in Maidstone were arrested for exactly this. Laddering is, mm. is very much the first step in police corruption for some people. Yeah, and that was something we discussed in, in season one, wasn't it? It's the, 
you know, people stepping into the people don't suddenly become majorly corrupt overnight. It's kind of this process that you go through and laddering tends to be the starting point. Yeah, totally. One of the other ways that you end up with corrupt officers is shown really clearly with the character of Ryan, um, Mm -hmm. who appears as a child in season one, but makes a return as an adult entering the police force as a recruit whilst already being embedded within an organised crime group, which is a fascinating, fascinating storyline. And again, he was there in season one. He had to be there in the end. That was perfect. Yeah. So Ryan, I mean, Ryan was the master of all things undercover, wasn't he? Mm. You know, we all watch Kate go undercover quite a lot in within mm. police units as part of AC12. Um, and we all think, oh, she's a bit of a pro, you know, she's managed to infiltrate these police units. But but Ryan, my gosh, he steals the show when it comes to just actually infiltrating the entire police. Mm. He he played the long game um, and he sent AC12 round the houses, round the houses and down the bloody drains, in fact. <laughs> So um, I guess it's it's a good time to talk about the science behind going undercover. Mm. So law enforcement agencies have used undercover operations for decades, of course. But one of the first organised undercover programmes was developed in France by a French criminal turned detective. The Love classic, classic story. He's called Eugène Francois Vidoc. And he lived in the late 19th century. And he's often considered to be the father of modern criminology. Mm. Vidoc often worked with ex-criminals, uh, so he, what he would do is kind of train them in the art of selecting the right disguise for the job. Mm. So let's channel our Vidoc and talk disguises. Mm. So if we, if we take some learnings here from the CIA, mm. an organisation that it's fair to assume does its, more than its fair share, perhaps, of creating disguises. Yes, I think so. <laughs> One of the ways that they <laughs> describe, you know, if you were to design a disguise, mm. uh, a good disguise should um, bear some resemblance to an onion in the sense that it should have many layers, things that can mm. be added, removed, uh, kind of peeled off as needed so that you can keep changing. Yeah. Um, and this kind of hinges on the idea that um, you need to change how someone would describe you. So, if you know, if, what are your classic features? If someone's to see you on the street and describe you as a person, you know, what would they describe you as being? And then you have to change those things. So if police ask for a description of me, for example, what would you, you know, what would your first thought be? Yeah. So let's set the scene. Mm-hmm. You've just bumped into me. You're running away from a bank robbery. I get okay. a fleeting glimpse. Mm-hmm. I'm describing you as kind of, you've got your light brown kind of wavy hair, your light mm-hmm. skin, you're white, kind of middle-aged woman. You're not mm-hmm. short, but you're also, you're not tall. Um, but you don't really have any dramatic standout features either. So you haven't got your purple hair, studded leather jacket, high heel boots, none of that. You're just quite a very ordinary looking woman. Yeah. And in fact, if I walked from the crime scene, nobody would have suspected me at all. That's true. If, really if you hadn't, if you hadn't run into me, don't I wouldn't run. have spotted you. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't run from crime scenes because people won't spot you. <laughs> so all of those things that you've listed, basically... Um, I would need to change so that when you described me, you weren't describing someone that looked like me. Yeah. So actually, you might put on a purple wig or a leather mm. jacket for the crime and then whip them off in the alleyway afterwards so that when you walk past me and then whip them off in the alleyway afterwards so that then you don't look like who people have seen at the crime scene. And you tick less of that list that the police have. Yeah, exactly. And you can do things like, you know, if I whipped off the wig and popped on a pair of glasses then people would be focusing on the glasses and saying, well, you know, she's she's got glasses, she's not got a purple purple hair. So, mm. um, and, and anything really simple like jackets or coats or hats that you can take off or put on in the process of, you know, disappearing from the crime scene will make a big difference. 
And sometimes it's a bit more permanent. So perhaps if you're on the run, you like you might change your hair color, the style, the texture, add or grow or change facial hair if you've got that option. Um, so <laughs> so all of those yeah. things, you know, are going to make a big difference. It can be more detailed as well. So, you know, if you've got some time and some resources behind you, like the good folks at the CIA do, mm. you can use things like dental features that can change the profile of your face. You can kind of plump it out. You can add a lisp, basically, to change how you enunciate and you can mm. talk. You can put things in your shoes so that you walk differently, you have a different gait. And the CIA actually will even go further and do some incredibly realistic work with masks that sit over your entire head. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of different things that are options to you. If you're, I don't know, planning on robbing a bank, I suppose. <laughs> Are we giving advice to these people? Whoops. I don't know. Mother of We're God, I hope science. not. No. <laughs> Very nice. So, so whatever the method you use, um, the ultimate goal is to blend in and not be noticed at all. So you've got to become grey, basically. Mm. Um, just one of the crowd. Now, I'm already grey in one of the crowd. This is, this is what you were describing. So, yeah, maybe yeah. you are ticking so the maybe box when being I quite grey. So maybe when I crime, I need to be you Standing know, out. jazzy and out there. And then when I run away from the crime, go back to being grey and walking Perhaps. with my handbag and whatnot, and people won't notice. Perhaps. Mm. And I have to admit, so maybe we're departing slightly from line of duty here because we actually mm. don't see very many elaborate disguises, do we? So no. if we look at Kate's undercover work, she actually adopts the method of going grey, really, doesn't mm. she? She tries not to get too uh, kind of obvious within her police, whatever new unit that is that she's infiltrating. She changes like her name and her backstory and things, but she doesn't try and change particularly her face or her clothes. Um, you know, she's not wearing a mask or anything like that because that would be a total nightmare, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't it? If you were running to a crime scene as a police officer, also in disguise, <laughs> and your your wig or your mask falls off, it's not a good look. Bang goes mm. your own undercover. <laughs> but they, I mean, they do say, don't they, that the best lies are are um, told, you know, based on truth, aren't they? Yes. Uh, yeah. And there's less to get caught out on. I think that's very true for Kate's versions of disguise yeah definitely and it, it's the it's the most cunning of disguises i think works really mm. well so i guess uh, if we move on from disguises then to some technology and yeah. first of all uh, the essential piece of kit for all of this shady undercover work is a burner phone yes nothing makes you look more suspicious than being found <laughs> with a burner phone so good yeah um so line of duty baddies or maybe the writers mm. love and Good burner phone story. And um, we had some intense burner phone moments in the final series with Ryan, hiding his secret comms device in his sock during that police raid. Yes. Mm. And, and actually, there was one headline last year in the news, in the real world, that caught my mm -hmm. eye that we just had to share. And that was that Greg's, the high street bakery, <laughs> sent Vicky McClure, who plays Kate Fleming, they sent her a Greg's burner phone, which gave her a direct <laughs> line to the bakery. Fantastic. Genius. Absolutely genius. And what it did, um, even better, was it allowed her to donate baked goods to the charity of her choice. And she chose uh, the Dementia Choir. Very, very. Mm -hmm. I mean, how wonderful is that? <laughs> Don't it's see funny. that on Line of Duty. <laughs> <laughs> so how about a little bit of digital forensics then while we're on the topic of tech? Yeah. So let's take a look at another branch of the police and another specialist area of sciences, the digital forensics experts. Um, and these are used to recover, preserve, examine and analyse data from digital devices. So personal computers, laptops, car computers, which is becoming more and more important, mm. actually. You Smart won't find one watches. of them in my Honda Jazz, but <laughs> in your electric mini, Karen, yes, that's tracking you everywhere. Exactly. And you can find out where I've been. So I might say I've been somewhere, but have I? We'll mm. see. Don't we'll have to rely on CCTV, do we? Yeah. No. 
And the same with smartwatches as well. Yeah. Um, so those Wi-Fi routers, you know, any gadget. Basically you've any got. gadget. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's it's very cool. So so essentially when investigating a crime scene, the first thing if you're a digital forensics officer is to try and identify these items and to mm. find them. So particularly important are the ones that are connected to the internet because things mm-hmm. like phones, maybe watches, maybe laptops, that kind of thing can sometimes be wiped remotely. And if you you know, if the person on the other end of that device knows that they're being searched for, knows there's incriminating information on there, they might try and wipe it remotely. So that's your priority. You've got to find those first because you don't want that data being lost. Yeah, so you want to disconnect them basically from the internet, switch off the uh, Wi-Fi or interconnected devices, uh, make sure the data is copied from them um, Mm. just to prevent that from happening. Um, And sometimes these devices are processed by forensic scientists first as two because they're obviously checking for fingerprints and of course, um, where you place your fingers can give an indication of, you know, if there's any locking mechanism, you know, mm. and you're trying to work out what the code is to lock in. So the position of the fingers and the prints can make a big difference. Well, that must have been um, a bit harder now. Everybody's going to face technology, face ID, mm. actually. Yeah, you don't get like a nose print, do you? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but so it's interesting because you have to, like, things like encryption is also becoming more mm. common, obviously, among general people who are worried about their, I don't know, Word documents full of shopping lists, whatever's on your laptops, <laughs> but, but particularly among people who are doing things that they know they don't want to get found, encrypting things like hard drives are really popular ways of protecting your data and mm. stopping them from being accessed so easily. So often hard drives used for criminal activities, of course, are fully encrypted. But mm. some of the tools that they use to do the encryption will actually also create a backup of everything that's being encrypted and store that somewhere else, just in case they then can't get back into their own encrypted files so sometimes yeah. if uh forensic officers are taking a while to get through this encryption layer it might actually be faster route for them to find the backup file somewhere that's really interesting like a sneaky isn't it? back door yeah. yeah you never really think yeah. of that so Although, uh, and i have read some articles that also sometimes if they can't get into them uh there's often a post-it note somewhere with a password written on <laughs> so if you are going to the lengths of fully encrypting all your hard drives don't leave it written next to yeah. them so if, you're any, if you're a digital forensic officer, you need to grab all the post-it notes around the computer as well as the digital devices themselves. That's what totally. you're saying, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so um, if digital forensics really can't get into an encrypted device um, and the police can prove that it's owned by a suspect, then the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act can be used. And basically me that means that they can ask the suspect for the password and mm. they can be looking at things, including a prison sentence, if you don't answer the question, which Sneaky. is very interesting. Yeah. yeah I didn't realise mm. that. Bury your gold. Mm. <laughs> is what I'm... <laughs> um, so this, uh, but this does hinge on uh, both having contact with the suspect. Mm. If the suspect's on the run, you can't use the Powers Act on them, can you? Because nope. what are you going to do? And also you have to be able to prove ownership. So this is where things like burner phones come in quite handy. Because a lot of the time a burner phone will be something that you've bought with cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, on like a pay-as-you-go sim and it's not registered to you so actually proving who owns the burner phone can be quite oh, tricky oh yes of course mm. some crimes of course are entirely digital um so financial crime some forms of fraud for example all digital so therefore this field of science is incredibly important if you're trying to police these crimes so fraud and financial crime mm. There are also, as well, a lot of artificial intelligence and ma- machine learning solutions that are ha- that are mm. helping to automate processes, like examining the data when it's extracted. So if you can imagine you've got tons of hard drives to go through, if you're manually combing through all of the data, all of the files, everything that's there, uh, mm-hmm. that can take that can take investigators a huge amount of time. That's a lot of mm. manpower required. And if you're up against the clock or you know something is 
uh, you think something is impending, um, it can be really useful to have uh, some kind of machine learning tool go through it all and flag things to prioritize to look at first. It you know, might help you scramble and get to the OCG's next crime site just in the nick <laughs> of time, of course, as uh, line of duty always seem to do. Yeah. So let's move on to the next section then and talk about processing a crime scene. And there's lots of obvious forensic science involved and we go into a lot of depth in our Silent Witness episode if you want to go back and listen to that. We do. We're going to give you the edited highlights here. Mm. Uh, as we did our live show audiences to mm. many of them, I saw a few squirms in the uh, in the front row of the audience mm. for some of the stuff, but here we go. So in TV <laughs> shows, uh, including Line of Duty, you will see a lot of like crime scene investigators, You know, teams of them coming in wearing their white body suits, they're wearing mm. their masks, they're looking at every item, every surface closely, they're photographing things, they're sampling them, they're bagging them up. And this is all based on something called Locard's Exchange Principle. Yes, and this is named after Edmund Locard, another French criminologist. So there you go. Even the French, the French were very criminals. good at crime or yeah. they were very good at observing crime. <laughs> Perhaps the two go hand in hand. Maybe, yes. Yeah. So he was one of the fa- uh, founding fathers of forensic science and he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of France, which is I, an amazing accolade, isn't it? So his theory states that whenever two objects come into contact, an exchange of materials occurs between those two. So this is the basic fundamental of forensic science and it shows you the importance of trace evidence. So the rooms that you and I are in now, when we when we leave them, we're going to be leaving bits of our hair, bits of our skin, clothing fibres on the chairs that we're sat on. Essentially, we're leaking like a colander. You pick up <laughs> bits of your environment everywhere you go and you leave stuff everywhere else. And chances are that wherever you are sat down at the moment, doesn't matter where you are, as soon as you stand up, you're going to take bits of someone else with you because you're going to pick up things from that chair. It might even just be whatever clothes you were wearing yesterday. You might have left some fibres there uh, yesterday if you're sitting in the same space, standing up, taking those fibres with you. Somebody Disgusting. might have brushed up against you while you're walking to work, you know, all these yeah. things. Jesus, Mary and the wee donkey, this is disgusting. And I don't think we should dwell on this one too much. I think we've hammered home the point. (laughs) I think we have, yeah. So this is why everything gets bagged and tagged, of course. And interpreting the forensic evidence is really, really key to the plot of Series 4 with DCI Ross Huntley and forensic coordinator Tim Ifield. Yes, indeed. Mm. I loved Series 4, actually. So if you can remember, dear listeners, cast your minds back. Ros Huntley goes to confront Tim in his home after Tim reports her to AC12, mm-hmm. thinking that she has framed someone else that they've just arrested. And they have an argument and he mm-hmm. burns his hand and he hits her. And then she falls over or is, you know, as she falls, hits her head and falls mm-hmm. unconscious. And he can't feel her pulse. So he thinks he's killed her. And what any rational man then does clearly <laughs> is goes out to being q buys loads of power tools, <laughs> Because, um, he, you know, he, he's a forensic coordinator. He understands the forensics. He understands policing. And he thinks, shh, shh, how do I get rid of a body that's in my kitchen? I've got to go and dismember it and, and dispose of it. And it's one of the best scenes in season four. Because mm. the moment he goes to chop off her head, she opens her eyes. And then bang, yeah. cuts to black. Next episode. Fantastic. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so essentially, she she kills him, tries to use her position in the police and her knowledge and investigative techniques to cover it all up. Yeah, real flip the, the story there, didn't she? Yeah. Mm. Um, so she knows her blood is at Tim's house, um, which, of course, she knows the DNA. They'll be able to identify that she was there You know, from when she'd hit her head. And she tries to replace it with a sample of Tim's blood that she's taken from his bloody clothes. Mm. Mm. 
So actually, yeah, she even plants a sample of somebody else's DNA at the crime scene just to meet, you know, misdirect the investigation further. So with all of this blood talk, let's talk blood spatter and that kind of science. Yeah, so now we're sucking diesel. <laughs> <laughs> um, we spent a day, actually, um, at Forensic Science House from the, at the University of the West of England, and we talked to a couple of experts, and we had a great, great old time, didn't oh, we, we, doing did. that? Yeah. Yeah, so what they essentially do is they have this house on campus for forensic science students, mm. and they can stage crimes within it in order for those students to then show how they would process the crime. Mm. And one of the coolest bits of this was they have a particular wall that they've named the blood spatter wall. <laughs> and they can they can basically use the patterns that they see in the blood on the wall to learn things about what happened when the blood was spilled. So, you know, where the person was standing, for example. Yeah. And what's interesting and what people don't actually realise is that when blood leaves the body, it travels as a ball, as a sphere. Mm. You often think it's more like a droplet, don't you? But actually, you know, it's, it's an actual sphere. And there's a very simple relationship between the sizes of the ball and the force that created it. The higher the impact force, the smaller the spot. And obviously, you know, vice versa, the lower the force, the larger the spot. And smaller spots will travel less due to wind resistance. So they won't go as far. And that makes a big difference as well. So it'll give you lots and lots of information just looking at the size of the spots and how far away they are from the victim. Yeah, so for example, if a victim is hit at a 90 degree angle to a wall or a floor, it will create a circular spot. So for example, like a drop on the floor just from a height. Mm. But if it's coming from an angle, then a tail is created and we do, we do get that kind of like droplet shape spatter on the wall. So the more force that was used, then the longer and thinner the blood spot will be because it will have travelled further along the wall. And mm. the tail itself is really useful because it will point back to the original source so investigators can use all of the shape of all of these elongated spots and, you know, some laser bits or bits of string uh, to kind of work out where all of these spots are pointing to. And mm. this is called a convergence point. And that is likely where the blood was initially spilled, came out of the body and can help with the kind of reconstruction of a crime process. And, uh, but of course, it's very important to realise it's not that easy. So during an attack, those involved might have been moving around. Um, and that would lead to overlaid patterns um, and that would make and the interpretation of that really, really complicated. Um, mm. So not just a single convergence point, but several. Yeah. So we'll refer to a scene from the series four again, I think. Mm. This is another uh, iconic scene in which Steve is being beaten with a baseball bat by <laughs> Balaclava Man. And if we're looking at blood spatter science, baseball bats actually have their own fun facts, don't they? Yeah, so in order to get blood spatter from a baseball bat attack, Steve would have to have been hit twice for that to happen. So the first time that you're hit, it doesn't break the skin, and the, but blood pools underneath the skin. And then if you hit the same spot again, that's where the skin breaks and the blood um, is spilled. So it's, um, yes, fun baseball fact. There, <laughs> um, so, yeah, and one of the other... And one of the other things is that as the bat moves backwards, uh, preparing for second or third blow, if that bat is covered in blood, it will fling blood spatter up uh, behind it, you know, painting the ceiling, mm. basically, which again adds to additional patterns for examination and interpretation. So people will genuinely specialise in blood spatter because it can get incredibly complex. But unfortunately, we don't have any concrete science explaining how Steve survived being thrown down many <laughs> flights of stairs and his injuries really not holding him back for very long, let's be honest. So instead, we're going to have a look at some of the other things that we can learn from blood at a crime scene. 
starting with blood being a great source of DNA, which is very important in working out who was even involved in a crime, or a crime scene at least. Yes, that's that's key actually, isn't it? Because you might have been at the crime scene, you might have bled at the crime scene, but it doesn't mean necessarily you were a criminal or a victim. Yeah. So most labs um, now use something called short tandem repeat analysis to get a DNA profile, but they have to amplify the DNA first because if you've just got a spot of blood, there's very little DNA going to be present there. And that's got to be amplified because red blood cells don't have a nucleus, so they don't have nuclear DNA. So, and they're a large number of the cells in blood are going to be red blood cells, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to amplify what's there using something called a polymerase chain reaction. And that's where they basically duplicate the small pieces of DNA. So you've got larger amounts of DNA. And then the STR, or short tandem repeat analysis, looks at how many times the base pairs are repeated. And that means it can help you, you know, identify specific pieces of DNA because of the the amount of times that those base pairs are repeated throughout it. And they, because they vary from person to person, and it's almost like a fingerprint. Um, so that's why we call them DNA fingerprints. And interestingly, something else that we learned at this crime scene house when we were you know, being walked through how to process a crime scene is that you also need to take control samples of the surface around a blood sample once you've seen it. So you need to identify whether if you you know if you've taken a swab of the blood sample, you need to know whether the DNA that you've picked up is from the blood sample or whether it was already on the table before. Mm-hmm. You might have touched the table, left your DNA on the table, and the blood might be overlaying over the top of it. Um, mm-hmm. So you don't want to be you don't want to be you might get a couple of profiles in there, exactly. yeah, just because you lent on a table earlier. <laughs> yeah. So if we move on from blood then onto uh, the subject of insects, oh, I'm always mm. here for some insect chat. You know, they're in global decline. We urgently need to support their, their population numbers in order to pollinate plants. Crops basically keep all of our ecosystems from collapsing, but I can see from your face. <laughs> that is not what you wanted to talk about this time. No, we're <laughs> going to talk about forensic entomology. It's not very helpful if we found a body in a freezer, but let's say we found a body out in the woods, um, like season four again. Mm-hmm. You have insects and other invertebrates that will obviously be inhabiting the body and they can be used to give a more accurate time of death. But to be fair, this is actually another tick in my insects are really cool campaign <laughs> box. Yeah. yeah, I think so. So when do you think the first recorded use of forensic entomology actually was? God, give me strength. I have <laughs> no idea. So it was actually the 13th century and there was a chap called Song Si in uh, China and he published a forensic science book of cases back in 1247. Can you imagine? Yeah, and it was basically designed as a handbook for coroners and it's still in print today. It's still available to buy today. Um, and I have a copy on my bookshelf. You do indeed. Do. <laughs> so forensic the translated version, of course. That's, uh, well, yes, not the original Chinese because I wouldn't be able to read that. So forensic entomology has been used systematically in criminal investigations for the last 30 years. Actually, talking about the book that's on my shelf, there is one, it's in English translation, right? But there's one chapter in Latin. Right, the universal scientific language. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, And the reason it's in Latin is because it was translated in, I think, the 1930s or something like that. And it's because it's about lady parts. Um, And they felt that only a doctor should be able to read the chapter on uh, lady parts. And therefore, it had to be in Latin. So uh, it was just shielded away by another language. (laughs) That is interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? Because I couldn't figure it out. It was really weird. I was quite happily reading through it. And it's like, what is this? (laughs) 
So there you go. Interesting fact. Anyway, back to the entomology. How does it actually work? (laughs) Right. So as the body decomposes, certain insects will begin to live on what's left of the body. And there are species like blowflies, which are almost always attracted to dead bodies. And they're normally the very first ones on the scene. Mm. And they will lay their eggs on exposed skin. Now, the eggs, the larvae and the pupae that are found on the body when investigators get to it can be collected. And their stage of development is used to calculate the time elapsed since death because they have a very regular life cycle. Mm. It's really clever, actually. Mm. So the way Song Si used it back in the 13th century was there was um, a murder that happened in a, you know, in a village in rural China and nobody was admitting to it. But they knew that the person had been murdered using a sickle, you know, one of the um, pieces of equipment they used to, to cut down the crop. And um, what Song Si did was he got them to all line up their sickles in front of them and stand back. And one of the sickles, lots of flies were attracted to, and they were attracted to the the remnants of blood that was still present on the sickle. And faced with that evidence, the um, the farmer actually confessed to, to murdering the person. He knew he'd been caught. Yeah. Regular listeners will know we do like a field trip. I mean, we've been to haunted prisons. We've gone and made pottery. We've also mentioned the crime scene house that we went and visited. Now, we went to Wiltshire Ballistic Service to learn a little bit about forensic ballistics, which was really interesting. Yeah, this was a really cool day out. There was Mm. a lot of gunfire in Line of Duty. Season six, no exception, really (laughs) amped up the firepower uh, on the screen. So, of course, you know, we had to find out a little bit more about this very specific area of science. Now, Wiltshire Ballistics have uh, special facilities to do lots of different things. And one of the things they can do there is test out bulletproof vests to see how effective they are. And they have something called a universal receiver, which is essentially a block of metal with a barrel of the required caliber of whatever the, you know, whatever the weapon is that you're going to use. And it fires the bullet at a plate or glass or a bulletproof vest or whatever. So it acts like the gun would in the situation. And you can change that barrel to make it replicate different types of gun um, just to test, mm. you know, diff- test different materials. So it's a very controlled firing process, mm. isn't it? And yeah. uh, they let us have a go when we got to press the button to yes. test some uh, bulletproof glass. It was very cool. Um, so when the bullet passes through, it passes through a velocity measuring system, hits mm-hmm. the glass or the bulletproof vest behind it, hopefully doesn't pass through whatever it is they're testing. Now, these velocity measuring systems are actually used in police forensics. In particular, Mm. they're of interest in court cases. Because if you're trying to get a conviction for someone for a crime, the level of criminal offence that you're going for depends a lot on the velocity and the level of force used. So what those do is they change the category of weapon that's being used. Mm -hmm. So whether somebody is using a lethal weapon or a dangerous weapon changes the conviction. You can convict someone for use of a lethal weapon or a dangerous weapon. So it's really important to be able to accurately kind of identify what's been used. Yeah, and and measuring that velocity is really key. So we all know that line of duty is all about um, conviction, getting the evidence required to stand up in court. And one of the other areas of forensic ballistics is to trace back bullets fired from a specific weapon. And we do that through looking at the rifling. Mm. So rifling is essentially putting a raised spiral within the tube of the gun so that when the bullet is fired out through it, it it, it makes it spin, it makes it mm. twist. And what this does is it improves the accuracy as it flies through the air. And I think just while we're on the subject of Line <laughs> of Duty and in particular Season 6, speaking of accuracy, I mm. think we can all assume that in Season 6, 
Steve's service issue handgun must have had some extra rifling <laughs> because in the final series, he makes this absolutely incredible, ridiculous shot to kill a sniper in a building while he's... Under fire. Under fire in an upturned vehicle with just a handgun. <laughs> so extra rifling there. Rolling in and out. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Dodging rifling. bullets in the middle of a firefight. <laughs> Amazing. Ridiculous. Um, but thanks to these different these spirals um, inside the barrel, it means that you end up with marks on the side of the bullet, and each barrel will provide different marks. So you can, if you if you've got the gun you think was used at the crime, you can actually fire a bullet from it under control conditions, and then compare the bullet with the one found at the crime scene and see if that gun was actually used in that crime. It's absolutely amazing. Mm, it can be. It, it's like fingerprint analysis of. Guns. It's, it's really, mm. really fascinating, actually, and very specific. Yeah. So, bulletproof vests. Mm. We all know that Martin Compson or Steve Arnott liked a good waistcoat vest, but he yes. did also sport <laughs> quite a lot of bulletproof vests, particularly mm. in, uh, in the last series. So, bulletproof vests. Bulletproof vests are made of Kevlar. Kevlar mm. is a synthetic material. It is super strong and it's a really lightweight plastic, but it's actually stronger than steel if a steel plate was the same weight uh, mm -hmm. and it can stop both knives and bullets. So it's really important in, in terms of the police force and kitting out people for protective purposes. Now, the molecules of Kevlar are internally arranged in parallel lines and they're kept really strong by hydrogen bonds. Mm -hmm. Then the Kevlar itself is spun into fibres and those fibres are very tightly woven. And the, the knit is so tight that it can stop a bullet from passing through. You know, these fibres will absorb the impact and they will dispense the energy throughout the rest of the plate and it, it, it prevents all of it necessarily reaching the person uh, behind the plate. Yeah, and if you think about it, there's a huge amount of energy to dissipate if you've, if you've been shot. So you'll still get an indentation of up to three centimetres. Now, mm. if you think about three centimetres, right? That's and quite a lot of body. That's a lot. And you can see why people end up with broken ribs and things like that, because mm. that's, that's quite deep. Uh, so it's, it's a distant relative of nylon, Kevlar, mm -hmm. and it's also actually used to strengthen tyres. So it's very versatile. Mm. We've found many uses from it since it was created in the 60s. We can't end on waistcoats. So before we all go and get a pint of that cat piss that you young fellas <laughs> seem to like so much, <laughs> oh, let's, <laughs> let's end with power poses. Yes. I think mm. that Kate's power poses actually might be your favourite thing about Line of Duty. Yes, definitely. And particularly the, you know, when you have this new series coming up and they're all standing there in, the in their promo shots. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You wouldn't want to mess with her. Yeah. No, goodness. Um, but there's actually some research that suggests that this, what they call postural feedback or power posing, actually works. Um, and this, this is, is why nuts. you see. The fact that power posing has like a scientific term associated with it, <laughs> I find really fun. Postural feedback. Yeah, Postural sorry, feedback. do carry on. And this is this. what's hilarious is is when politicians get it wrong and they stand there with their legs too far apart and it's not quite right. It's, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that going on, isn't there? But this postural feedback, power posing, um, means that by holding your body in a certain way, it can have an influence on how you feel and how you behave. So we're back to psychology. Mm. And there's, there's quite a lot of debate around this. And mm. often the research will focus on two particular stances or styles of stance. So you can have an open or an expansive stance. So this is where you kind of tend to make yourself taller, bigger, wider, uh, which is the sort of thing we often categorise as a power pose. Mm -hmm. And it has a look at this compared to things known as a closed stance or a contractive stance. So this is where mm -hmm. you kind of 
cross your legs, cross your arms, you lean inwards and you try and make yourself a little bit smaller. Yeah, and some studies have reported that participants who were asked to do an open power pose felt more powerful when completing a task than those who were asked to adopt a closed pose. Yeah, so whether you know whether it tells everybody else that you're powerful or not, who knows? But it's, it mm. might it might help your competency. And another study found that actually it might be more down to the negative impact of a closed pose. Mm. So that resulted in different changes in your behaviour and feelings, uh, and those were more negative than the perceived benefits of power poses. So you know possibly that's because uh, of the association that we have between danger and a closed pose. So although the jury is still out on power poses, we can all agree that Kate looks absolutely awesome when she does a power pose. And it's still likely better for you than folding yourself up in a closed, retracted pose. Mm. Mm. And the shows always end with the most intense, deliciously <laughs> long interview scenes where we get all the answers, or you know, most of them anyway. And we've got to talk about the final series and the interview with Ryan Pilkington, which lasted 29 minutes and 22 seconds. It. I cannot believe it was that long. Gripping. I don't remember it feeling that long. I remember no, being on the edge of my seat for the whole thing. Really, really good writing. Mm. If it doesn't feel that long, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, so if you could step into the interview room, you have the right to be interviewed by an officer at least one grade higher than you. <laughs> mm. Now, I mean, the police obviously don't share all of their interview no. techniques online <laughs> for obvious, obvious reasons. We did try and look for the interview science here. Um, and we did find a few things that, that talk about some of the theories and we spotted one thing that we think that we've seen Ted Hastings doing in the interview room on several occasions. Yes. Um, and this is something called funnel strategies of questioning. Mm. So this is where the interrogator drives towards a specific objective by asking open-ended questions, first of all, that start mm. with something like, tell me or explain or describe something really open about the broad domain within which that objective is contained that piece of information they definitely want is there somewhere mm. but you don't know if you're being interviewed you don't know what it is so you, you loosely set the scene and then mm. it's swiftly followed by probing questions and these are supposed to become increasingly narrow mm. and the interrogator is supposed to then insert clarifying questions as needed just to really zero in on the point yeah, and once the objective is reached the interrogator gradually moves the conversation away from that objective transitions into another topic because what you don't want is the suspect to realise that they've given something away. Mm, yeah, a good advice from the FBI mm. there. And I think a little homework for you <laughs> if you're planning to go back and watch Line of Duty. Do watch out for this because there are quite a few moments where you can really see mm. the, the funnelling happening. But uh, and perhaps it's Ted Hastings or perhaps it's the writers uh, being part of the audience. You can often actually see sometimes when Ted reaches that objective, he gets that nugget of information out of something. You can see him sort of celebrate a little bit. He knows he's won, <laughs> but the real world advice, the science behind this psychology <laughs> is that you shouldn't celebrate. You should just, uh, even if you know you've got him, you need just to just move on, on yeah. move on swiftly. Yeah. But obviously he's playing the role of the audience. We want the audience to know that he's got them yeah. and we want to be there with him. So it's almost, so that's, that's clearly we'll why it's there. Yeah. We'll forgive. We'll forgive him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and on that then I think that's all we've got time for you on the science behind one of our all-time favourite crime mm. dramas Line of Duty says only there's only one thing really left to say isn't there Karen yeah. stop making a tit of yourself and piss off <laughs> charming <laughs> fantastic yeah so there we go uh, that's the last uh, Line of Duty quote for the show and here's the full list right okay well we had stop making a tit of yourself and piss off that's the last one mm -hmm. Then we also had, 
Mother of God, of course, we had to get Mother of God in. Mm. Cheers, mate. A little bit of Steve. Mm-hmm. We sent AC-12 round the houses and down the bloody drains. <laughs> Most of these quotes were, they were Hastings, actually. They wrote him some, mm. some excellent, excellent ones. We leaked like a colander. <laughs> Jesus, Mary and the wee donkey, of course, had to of make course. it in. Yes. Now we're sucking diesel. <laughs> God give me strength. Go and get a pint of that cat piss that you young fellas <laughs> seem to like so much. I think that was in season one. When I rewatched season one, I was just like, whoa, <laughs> where did that come from? Hastings hating lager. Mm. Uh, and you have the right to be interviewed by an officer at least one grade higher than you. If only we had the immortal beep as the recording started to, to play us out on. That was a good list. I think we, we got yeah, quite a few in. Yeah, I think in. so. I think we're quite successful there. Mm. Yeah. So if you enjoyed that, do go back and listen to a few of our other episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy. Um, so Silent Witness, for example, I think you'll love. Be a really good one to listen back to. Yeah, we've got shows from all things from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Friends, Bridgerton. Mm. You might not mm. think there's much science behind Bridgerton or Strictly Come Dancing, but allow us to prove you wrong, <laughs> listeners. Don't forget, you can also get a little bit more from us on social media or on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Small Screen Science. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye. Bye.